This is episode 14 of the Floxy Hope podcast. Just so you know, the sound is really horrible for the first five minutes of this podcast. After the first five minutes, it gets better, and it's a wonderful, wonderful interview. So please listen, and don't turn it off just because the sound is horrible. I apologize for the first five minutes of this interview. Thank you for listening. You are listening to the Floxy Hope Podcast. My name is Lisa Bloomquist, and I am beyond honored to introduce our next guest. She is a clinical professor of medicine at the University of Iowa and a staff physician at the Iowa City Veterans Affairs Hospital, where she teaches medical students and resident physicians, sees patients in traumatic brain injury and therapeutic lifestyle clinics with complex chronic health problems that often include multiple autoimmune disorders, and conducts clinical trials. She has published over 60 peer-reviewed scientific abstracts, posters, and papers. In addition to being a doctor, she is also a patient with a chronic progressive disease, multiple sclerosis. She has inspired millions of people with her TED Talk about putting her MS into remission through minding her mitochondria and transforming her diet. She is the author of the groundbreaking bestseller, The Walls Protocol. It is my absolute honor to introduce Dr. Terry Walls. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast, Dr. Walls. Oh, thank you. Very glad to be here. And you, in addition to inspiring millions through your TED Talk and book, you have inspired just hundreds or thousands of people who are affected by fluoroquinolone toxicity. So your willingness to come on this podcast and speak to people who are are devastated by fluoroquinolones is very, very, very much appreciated. No, I'm very glad to do that then. Likewise, I've uh, been talking to people in the Lyme uh, community and other chronic co-infections who, unfortunately, uh, in that process, uh, were poisoned uh, by this long-term antibiotic use. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's one of those things where until it happens to you, most people think that, that antibiotics are, are relatively benign or just that C. diff is the worst thing that could happen. Not, and not that C. diff isn't horrible. Um, I, I think it's understood that C. diff, C. diff can be deadly, but, but no one expects that antibiotics can cause a multi-symptom chronic illness really until it happens to them or until it happens to, to a, love, a loved one. Yeah, we um, assume our medicines to be safe, to be miraculous, and uh, physicians uh, and families alike often have that uh, incorrect assumption. And, and unfortunately, people, people are getting hurt. And you know, when, when doctors like you acknowledge all the, the toxicity of, of the medications, for one, it's really appreciated by, by this community. But I think anyone who has a, a multi-symptom chronic illness really struggles, whether that be Lyme or whether that be chronic fatigue or fibromyalgia. Um, I think that there's a lot of struggling with, uh, with just acknowledgement. And any doctor who's willing to, to um, acknowledge it is, is very much appreciated. And you not only acknowledge it, you give us this really wonderful guidebook in how to, um, in how to go about treating it. So um, can you tell us a little bit about the WALS protocol, um, how, sure. however you want to start? You know, Lisa, what I think I should do is uh, tell your audience my story so they understand um, how I came to my conclusions. 
So I'm an academic internal medicine doc, uh, professor of medicine, and I practice very conventionally academic, uh, best standard of care medicine. And then in 2000, I was diagnosed with a progressive incurable disease, relapsing remitting MS. I knew that within 10 years of diagnosis, one third will have difficulty walking, needing a cane, walker, or wheelchair. And one half will be unable to work due to severe fatigue. And so I decided to treat my disease aggressively. I uh, sought out the best center that did uh, patient care and research, which was the Cleveland Clinic. Uh, saw the best people, took the newest drugs. And still within three years of diagnosis, my disease had converted to secondary progressive MS. At that point, I needed to recline wheelchair. I took uh, chemotherapy uh, for several rounds. Uh, then I took Tizabu. Uh, then that was pulled from the market. I switched to another disease-modifying drug called Celsept. Uh, I had seven years of steady decline. Now, when I hit the wheelchair, I decided that um, conventional medicine was not stopping the slide into a bedridden and quite probably demented life. So I started reading the science, the basic science, the animal studies myself. And I was adding various vitamins and supplements based on those mouse studies. I had, uh, should also uh, tell you that my Cleveland Clinic doctor had recommended that I read the work of Lauren Cordain, uh, <clears throat> which I did. And so after 20 years of being a vegetarian... I went back to eating meat, uh, and I took away all, all grains, all legumes, all dairy, <clears throat> because of uh, concern that these were causing the excessive inflammatory response, but still declined. <clears throat> and the following year is when I was told my disease had converted to progressive MS, and I needed the, wheel the wheelchair and took the chemotherapy and headed down that path. Um, so over the next several years, I was gradually adding a few more vitamins and supplements. The speed of my decline slowed, and, and I was really quite grateful. I became convinced that mitochondria were a key player in MS, and I was working on, on all these vitamins and supplement programs to support my mitochondria. I discovered the Institute for Functional Medicine and took their course on neuroprotection and now had a much longer list of vitamins and supplements to take. Uh, and by the summer of 2007, I was so weak I could no longer sit up in a regular chair. I had to be in a zero-gravity recliner with my knees higher than my nose. I could walk very short distances with two canes. Um, I was beginning to have a lot of problems with uh, brain fog and recall. And um, I, I knew I, I would finally have to... Uh, quit working uh, very soon because of the uh, brain fog. Uh, and, and that's when I'd, uh, I had started with the supplements from uh, the Institute for Functional Medicine from that neuroprotection course. Uh, that may have improved things ever so slightly. Uh, and then that fall, I had the brilliant idea that, you know, I should get the, this, the, these 20 nutrients I was taking in pill form uh, from the food. So now I was doing uh, research on what foods I should be stressing. And I redesigned my diet uh, to get these foodstuffs. 
uh, it's still following the paleo principles. And this diet is what I now call the Walls diet. Uh, and that's really when the magic began. Uh, within three months, I was walking throughout the hospital with a cane. Uh, in six months, my fatigue was gone. My brain fog was gone. I no longer needed the cane. Uh, at nine months, I got on my bike for the first time uh, in about six years, biked around the block. And that was the first time that I really uh, thought that you know, I was recovering and that nobody knew what might be possible. And at 12 months, I was able to do a 20-mile bike ride with my family. Of course, this changes how I understand disease and health. It would change how I practice medicine. It would change the type of research that I do. Uh, and uh, my uh, chair of medicine uh, encouraged me to write up a case report, which we did. Uh, then once I had that published, uh, my chair pulled me back in, said, you need to shift your research program and see if you could replicate this and others with progressive MS. Uh, and so we got uh, grant funding, and we have a, a little clinical trial of 20 subjects that also with progressive MS that have, um, and that's the condition where there's no spontaneous remission. All that's ever reported is a steady decline, whether it's secondary or primary progressive MS. And we gave them... Uh, uh, the same diet, uh, targeted vitamins and supplements. We taught them to meditate. We uh, gave them an exercise program and taught them how to do electrical stimulation of muscles. And what we were able to show is that people could do it. Um, if they were overweight, they lost weight without being hungry. And that we had a uh, very large uh, reduction in fatigue, um, the largest that's ever been reported in what is the most advanced and disabled a population of MS folks ever studied. And we were able to show that uh, the quality of life improved quite remarkably for this cohort. We've had a couple more studies. Again, uh, each time we've studied this, uh, there's been favorable results. Um, we're uh, just getting ready to launch uh, our fourth trial, which will be comparing uh, a low-saturated fat diet called the Swank diet to the Walls diet. And are all of these trials with people with MS, or are you looking at some people with other diseases as well? No, these are all with MS. It, it, and the way uh, research works is uh, you're always building on your prior knowledge. Uh, and besides, um, I, I get to do the research that somebody pays me to do. So uh, it's uh, uh, private foundations within the MS world or private donors that have uh, given me uh, the funding to do the trials I've done now. Um, we have a, a grant in with the uh, MS Society, and I'm very hopeful that uh, they will give me funding next, but we'll see. That, that certainly makes sense. And um, something that you talk about in your, in your book, though, is just how similar these chronic multi-symptom illnesses, illnesses are. And, oh, absolutely. And, and, yeah. Go ahead. You know, if, if you look at uh, th from the way diseases are diagnosed traditionally, uh, they all look very different uh, uh, so that scleroderma, lupus, RA, uh, fluoroquinolone poisoning, autism, they all look radically different. Uh, but when we look at the cellular level, 
and the biochemical level, uh, now there's a lot of commonality. There's evidence that the mitochondria are not working well. There are too many um, uh, free radicals, so lots of oxidative stress. There is evidence for uh, ex excess and inappropriate inflammation that is damaging what had been healthy cells and healthy uh, organs within the body. So the inflammation was not in response to trauma or infection. Uh, and so, uh, you know, more, more of the uh, functional medicine physicians are recognizing that uh, it, it's really the same disease. And what we can best do is help people address all their environmental uh, lifestyle factors that are revving up the inflammation and contributing to the mitochondrial dysfunction and allow the body then uh, to repair itself by taking away all the stuff that's harming it and properly nourishing the body uh, of the nutrients and lifestyle factors uh, that it needs. And I want to go over all of those lifestyle factors, but I wanted to, to mention on, on the topic of defining diseases, how, how in your book you talk about how these diseases are often defined by what pharmaceutical treats them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, and we see that more and more that the pharmaceuticals are doing a good job of creating diagnoses for their drugs. And, and you certainly see that in psychiatry. I know that oh, absolutely, glaring in psychiatry. I recently read Anatomy of an Epidemic by Robert Whitaker, and yeah. and and just talk about about eye opening. But before we go go down that path, um, can you tell us a bit more about how people put their mitochondria back together and reduce inflammation and and reduce well, oxidative <clears throat> stress? So uh, the. Uh, Mitochondria, uh, as everyone probably knows who follows you, uh, these were ancient bacteria that were engulfed by bigger bacteria about uh, one and a half billion years ago. And they developed a very cooperative relationship, so uh, that allowed the bacteria to become multicellular, uh, which would then become animals, and of course mammals, primates, and eventually us. Every organ in our body depends on the mitochondria uh, to power the cells that do the work uh, that's going to be performed by that organ. So whenever we have any kind of chronic disease, <clears throat> uh, we'll say the blood vessels aren't working very well, so you get high blood pressure, or the pancreas isn't working well, so you get diabetes, or the uh, brain's not working very well, so you have some memory loss. The heart's not working well, so you have heart failure. Um, there's probably a large element of mitochondrial strain that is contributing to that. Uh, so the first thing uh, that I talk about is you want to be sure that you're nourishing your mitochondria for the um, components that they need. Uh, and these components will be, uh, number one, you need a lot of uh, healthy fats because the mitochondria, if you remember from biology, uh, there's a little oval with a lot of zigzags down the middle, uh, which are these folded membranes. So all of the proteins that do the work that happens in the mitochondria are stuck in a cell membrane. 
So you need uh, a lot of omega-3, omega-6 fats <clears throat> for those membranes uh, to work well. And uh, we a proper balance of omega-3 and omega-6. We have, in general, because we have too many seed oils, way too much omega-6 and not enough omega-3 because we aren't eating as much grass-fed meat, uh, wild game, wild fish. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, one big area. Uh, another area is uh, B vitamins. You need the whole family of B vitamins for uh, all those reactions to happen properly. And uh, easily uh, a quarter to a uh, third, half of us, uh, do not take in a diet that provides sufficient uh, amounts of our B vitamins. As you get over the age of 50, the intake of B12 decreases and your ability to absorb it uh, also decreases. Uh, we need minerals. Minerals are the cofactors for, ne- for all of the vitamin reactions. Um, so you need things like uh, zinc, calcium, copper, uh, manganese, um, potassium, chromium. And, and these, these minerals are especially important for the, the floxed, the floxy population. That's kind of what the fluoroquinolone toxicity victims call ourselves uh, because the fluoroquinolones chelate, they've been documented to chelate both magnesium and iron, both of which are obviously essential, essential minerals from cells and then that are necessary for all sorts of enzymatic reactions. And there's certainly some anecdotal evidence that they deplete things like manganese and zinc too. So, um, so, well, so pay attention. Um, this is huge. Um, uh, the acid-lowering medications are often uh, given to people in the hospital, and then for some reason they just get left on them permanently. Uh, people have the wrong uh, bacteria in their bowels, end up with heartburn, so they give an acid-lowering medication. Uh, and when you don't have enough stomach acid, it markedly reduces your ability to absorb minerals. Which is probably why when you give somebody medicine to lower their stomach acidity, you dramatically increase the risk of osteoporosis and of cognitive decline and other chronic health problems. Uh, so these drugs have a nice safe, safety profile for about two months, and, uh, but their safety profile for long-term use uh, is very poor. So many, many, many Americans are on these proton pump inhibitors, which uh, make them mineral depleted, which, of course, increases the risk for um, all sorts of chronic health problems. It's it's insanity in a lot of ways. Like, we need to look at long-term interactions and and, uh, how how people's health actually ends up and actually look at multiple systems and um, not just just assume that... uh, I I read that um, the symptoms of low stomach acid and the symptoms of high stomach acid are pretty much the same. You get heartburn if you don't have enough hydrochloric acid. Yes. Um, and, And I certainly found that to be true for, for myself. I was getting horrible, um, a horrible heartburn. And as soon as I started supplementing hydrochloric acid, that went away. Isn't that interesting? It, it's, yeah. it's certainly interesting to me. And it's nice to know that that will help me to absorb more, absorb more minerals too. Oh, absolutely. It will, uh, 
because all of the digestive enzymes um, are activated first by as by acids. Mm-hmm. If you don't have stomach acids, uh, your ability to not only absorb minerals but to digest proteins uh, is compromised as well. So, uh, I mean, there are some serious negative consequences uh, for not having enough stomach acid. Um, you'll also be much more likely to have an overgrowth of sugar-loving yeast and sugar-loving bacteria and end up with the wrong uh, species living in your bowels that are uh, health-worsening as opposed to health-promoting. Uh, absolutely. So how do people, how do you recommend that people take care of their gut? Um, well, um, uh, for most people, uh, if you're completely well, so no chronic illness, no chronic medication, at ideal body weight, your interpretation of your diet is probably fine. If you're anyone else, uh, so you have a chronic medication that you take, chronic symptoms, uh, or you're overweight, uh, or you have mental health issues, um, then I, I think you probably, your interpretation of your diet is, heart, is part of your health problem. Uh, the dietary approach or lens that I use uh, uh, is a structured paleolithic diet. Uh, so many of my uh, paleo-eating friends eat a lot of meat and not much else. I, on the other hand, eat uh, lots and lots of vegetables and some meat. So I, I'm a tall lady, six foot tall, so I have nine cups of vegetables uh, divided between greens, sulfur-rich, so that's cabbage family, onion family, mushroom family, and deeply pigmented. Uh, that would be like carrots, beets, berries. Uh, and then I'll have six to 12 ounces of meat or fish. Um, and that's my basic level diet. Uh, I do have plans in my book for people who are uh, you know, spiritually um, uncomfortable with eating animal uh, protein. And so I talk about uh, strategies that a vegetarian could use, although my preference is that people have animal protein. And one of the things that you recommend is um, organ meats as well, right? I, I had chicken for dinner um, in, in the anticipation of doing this interview. So. Uh, perfect, perfect. So um, liver is really... Uh, probably the best superfood uh, that you can get uh, for the money spent. Uh, it is a, a great source of essential fats that we need for our mitochondria. It's a great source of the fat-soluble vitamins, the water-soluble vitamins, and well-absorbed minerals. Our ancestors would have probably had about a third of all of their meat protein uh, come from organ meats like brain, heart, lungs, uh, kidneys, liver. Uh, and uh, that was much more important than eating uh, regular muscle meat. And, and they, just, they just knew from their, from their cultural heritage, and, and we oh, yeah. lost I mean, that. Th- that's right. So uh, we have over uh, the hundreds of millions of years that our species has been evolving and learning uh, what traditions led to a healthier clan. So we, we all learned for our locale and the foods that grew in that area, what were the foods that were associated with sickness and what was associated with health. 
And unfortunately, we've lost that wisdom. Uh, and we've been hijacked by a, a commercialized food industry that rewards overconsumption and drives uh, overconsumption by lacing our food with food-like chemicals that are designed to uh, enhance uh, hunger uh, and overconsumption of these foods that have a lot of calories, a lot of sugar, a lot of white flour, food, uh, foods that feed uh, disease-promoting bacteria and yeast, uh, and starve our health-promoting bacteria. We have to quit letting other people cook uh, food for us that's destroying our health. Uh, ab absolutely. And, and for the people listening, Michael Pollan's books go over a, a lot of uh, much more detail about, about things like that. And I, I highly recommend them. I know that you've mentioned Michael Pollan on, on your Facebook site, site yeah. a couple of times. In regards to the overconsumption, what do you think about fasting? So uh, fasting uh, is something that we've done uh, probably since... Uh, We've been uh, homo sapiens, you know, 500,000 years ago. And uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure since we've been homo, the genus, for two and a half million years, that uh, we would intermittently fast when you couldn't find food. And certainly every winter, once we left um, Africa and went into places where there was winter, uh, we would experience fasting and relative ketosis uh, throughout that winter. Uh, and what science has discovered is when we're fasting and we switch from burning sugar in our mitochondria to burning fat, uh, in our brain we generate some hormones called uh, nerve growth factors that stimulate uh, repair of brain cells and making more synapses or connections between brain cells. So that's a good thing. Uh, fasting also stimulates... Uh, the mitochondria to uh, become more robust uh, uh, singly and to divide and make more mitochondria per cell. So uh, the cell is more efficient at producing energy. Uh, if you look at the anti-aging literature, uh, reducing calories uh, by a third uh, uh, adds a lot of longevity. Uh, fasting every other day adds longevity. Doing periodic three-day fast adds longevity. Um, so th there's a lot of benefit in it. <clears throat> However, uh, this uh, fasting is stressful. It will increase your, some of your stress hormones. And uh, when you fast and you burn fat, you'll release some stored toxins in the fast. Um, so you have to be careful uh, about how you manage your detox status if you do that. And, and do, you re do you recommend fasting and uh, ketosis for people who are actively ill? Um, or, do you, or do you think that that's well, something that they should wait until they've built up some strength? So you know, in my book, uh, in the chapter about ketosis, I talk about uh, uh, where the science is going right now. Uh, there are a lot of uh, studies of uh, using ketosis as an intervention uh, for uh, diseases of the brain like uh, Parkinson's, uh, ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, uh, schizophrenia, bipolar uh, depression, 
uh, MS. Uh, uh, there are studies of uh, ketosis for metabolic syndrome, polycystic ovarian disease, uh, and many studies for cancer. So those questions are being investigated right now. Uh, and I talk about reasons uh, that you might consider doing ketosis, uh, but I admit uh, this is cutting-edge science. Nobody knows uh, how long you should stay in it. Um, what I think you, 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 one could theorize, you know, at least the rationale is look where your ancestral heritage is from. So uh, my ancestors are from Northern Europe. So I think I could say with confidence that my ancestors probably were in ketosis four months out of the year uh, every winter for, you know, hundreds of generations. So I would have every reason to think that I could be in ketosis four months out of the year and have no compromise to my health. If I go longer than that, now I'm doing an experiment that we don't really know, but there are reasons why I might still want to do that. For example, if I developed uh, brain cancer, I would be happy to be in ketosis uh, throughout the treatment for the brain cancer, get myself cancer-free, and then reevaluate. Uh, you know, do I stay in ketosis forever or do I do it four months out of the year, knowing that we don't know. Um, and the beauty of living in today's world is we get to know what the sciences, scientists are studying right now, and so we can decide if we need to wait for the answer before we try that intervention, or if we think that intervention's that low enough risk that I want to do that intervention while the science is being done because I have uh, a, a very serious health challenge that I'm facing. Sure. And and the what about like the native um, Alaskan populations? The, oh, they, yes. They were probably in ketosis. So they're in ketosis, but they get out of ketosis three months out of the year because they have summer too. Sure. So, you know, even our um, Arctic dwellers where the ketogenic tribe will, you know, point to them and say, you know, they're in ketosis all the time. Well, uh, when we look at some of the scientists who have gone up there, they've found that uh, they're not in ketosis all the time. And they sort of uh, have a very low glycemic diet, sort of in and out of ketosis. During the summer, they're definitely not in ketosis. Um, and then, yes, they go back into a uh, more high-fat diet uh, during the winter and probably spend more time in ketosis during their long winter. But uh, for at least three months, they get to have their summer fruit, too. It's it's interesting and and yeah absolutely like learning from some of our ancestors that weren't so so um, removed from from their instincts I think is, well, is really a great it, way to approach things. I mean I think it's very helpful to look at uh, uh, near as we can tell what were the diet and lifestyle factors that our ancestors lived by because we know that. Uh, they could thrive. They didn't have high blood pressure, diabetes, heart disease, chronic disease. They died of infection and trauma. Uh, and so my goal is to teach people how to emulate that as well as they can, given you know that we live in modern society. And so uh, those are the factors that I talk about in my book. It's like, okay, here's what worked for me, and here are the things that I teach in my clinics uh, in our clinical trial in terms of uh, diet and lifestyle interventions that we're going to emulate. Excellent. Um, 
another question on a different topic or similar topic. Uh, what should people do to detox? Well, um, so there's a, uh, two parts to that. The toxins that I have stored in my body right now, this very instant, are the accumulation of my lifetime of intake, what I've absorbed through my gut, my skin, my lungs, minus what I've been able to excrete by my liver, kidneys, and sweat glands. So there's uh, two levers to push. One is how you get the stuff out, and the other is how you get the stuff in. So step number one is to evaluate your exposures and reduce them as much as you can. Uh, and you have to think about your uh, personal care products, which uh, are filled with toxins. So instead of putting on lotion, why don't you just use olive oil on your skin, for example? Or, or coconut oil. I've been or using, coconut oil. I've been uh, using coconut oil pretty much since I got floxed. And, and now, even when I try to use like an unscented lotion, just it smells like, it smells like chemicals. It smells like petrochemicals. It, 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 it is. And instead of toothpaste... Uh, brush your teeth with olive, with um, coconut oil and a couple drops of oregano oil uh, or th uh, three thieves oil on your uh, toothbrush and your gums will be the healthiest they've ever been and your dentist will be saying like, oh my God, what are you doing? They're, your teeth are so great. So you can, you can really quit using personal care products and switch to using um, natural uh, oils and foods uh, instead. Then, uh, in terms of the foods that you're consuming, uh, try and have them as clean as your budget will allow. You can use the Environmental Working Group to help you prioritize with their Clean 15 and their Dirty Dozen. Um, and uh, if you have exposure to sunlight, start growing your own food as much as you can in container gardens or uh, food mixed in with your flower beds or gardens, uh, that would be helpful. Uh, and then, you know, it, the way I've designed my diet, uh, I've designed it very intentionally because these food groups uh, will not only help boost your mitochondria and help boost your brain's ability to make necessary brain molecules, it will support your liver, your kidney, uh, and your sweat glands uh, in terms of the enzymes they need to process and eliminate the trash. And, and you know, actually, I have a great chapter on detox that gives many more suggestions and concrete additional things that you can do to move this along. What I do not recommend is IV chelation. Uh, I don't recommend taking the mercury out of your mouth. Um, I, I talk about the reasons why you might do that but the very serious uh, downsides of those uh, particular interventions. They're, they're certainly risky, and I think that, that people need to realize that, and they really need to consider that before they, before they do any sort of chelation therapy. Yeah, they could make, uh, give themselves a kidney failure and dialysis. Well, that's, accidentally, that that is certainly not good. No one, no one wants wants to do to do that. Um, what what else would you like to share about the about the walls protocol? Um, so, uh, a lot, obviously, many people with the MS community around the world have heard my story. 
Um, but I, uh, people need to, need to know that this is for a lot more than MS or autoimmunity. It's for people who are trying to restore their mitochondria after prolonged antibiotic use, whether it's from the fluoroquinolones or any of the antibiotics, because they all are targeting bacteria and therefore are mitochondria. Any uh, prolonged use of antibiotics, or for some people even just a single exposure, can have very serious negative effects on their um, mitochondria. What, what I'm finding is that this protocol you know, is very helpful for mental health issues, um, for uh, diabetes, obesity, metabolic syndrome, fatty liver, uh, because nearly all of our chronic diseases developed because the environment speaks to our genes and because of our poor healthy health uh, and diet lifestyle, we're shifting our genes, which ones are on, which ones are off, and we're converting what should have been a healthy disease-resistant body into an inflamed, sickly, disease-prone body. And while medications might control symptoms for a brief time, they don't change which genes are on and off. And so whatever disease you have will progress and you will likely pick up additional diseases and diagnoses. And you'll be on more and more medications, getting more and more ill with each passing year. You have to deal with diet and lifestyle if you want to restore your health. Uh, absolutely. And um, thank you for, for, for that, That's, um, for, for providing such a great protocol for, for people to deal with that. And it's not, um, the WALS protocol, it's not just a diet. It's, it's a multi-pronged approach. Um, and you include information about exercise and about meditation. Um, things, it's, it's not just a diet book. So, so I highly recommend to people that they, that they go out and, and buy it. And I also want to just read a little, a little section from your introduction. This is on page 20 of the paperback edition. This book is about hope. My overarching message couldn't be more straightforward. You don't have to be a victim. The disease or condition you have is already happening, but there are significant things that you can do to, to slow, halt, or even reverse your symptoms. Medication can't take away your autoimmune disease, but your body can heal itself if you give it the tools. And I, I thought that that was just, that was just wonderful. Like the, the, my website and the name of this podcast is the Foxy Hope Podcast and really trying to, to give people some, some hope that their bodies can heal. And if they give themselves the right tools, their, their bodies can, can recover. So um, I, I thank you for, for that message in, in your book as well. And I wanted to let people know that it's a hopeful book. It is uh, very hopeful. You know, and I can't uh, predict how much uh, recovery somebody will have or how fast uh, they will recover. But I certainly can predict that if you don't uh, improve your diet and lifestyle, whatever disease you have will progress. Uh, so we have immense control over our destiny. And I think that's uh, very important for all of us to realize that we have so much more control than we ever realized. 
And and we need it because we're constantly being assaulted by these by by toxins and and pollutants and pharmaceuticals that that have adverse effects and and things mm-hmm. like that and we really need to to take control over our over our lifestyle and over our environment so that so that we could live a long and happy and healthy life that and and to overcome these chronic illnesses because they they sure are they sure are beasts absolutely and and um you know i I want to know uh, when my children have kids i'd like to know uh, who my kids are who my grandchildren are who my great-grandchildren are i want to be able to be outside playing with them having fun reading stories with them and to do that i have to take really good care of myself so that's my plan right right and uh that that sounds that sounds like an excellent plan. Are you feeling good now? This it's been several years since your TED talk. Uh, it's been several years. I continue uh, to thrive. I continue uh, to do well. Uh, my kids tell me that I keep looking younger every year, although my hair is getting more gray. Um, but uh, I, I would agree that I keep looking younger and younger. Um, it, and that's also what I see in our clinics uh, is that. Uh, people do look uh, younger and younger the longer they're on the protocol. That's that's fabulous. Um, one last question before I let you go. How do you suggest that the community of people who want to advocate for greater awareness of fluoroquinolone toxicity and um, and to get more doctors to recognize that this is a problem and maybe use these drugs more more prudently. Um, like as someone who is in the medical field, do you have any suggestions for us as far as outreach and framing our our problem in a way that people will be receptive to? You know, um, so I, I've made a, a choice uh, to do things uh, multi-pronged. Uh, I do the clinical trials. Uh, I write uh, papers, which means I have to write a lot of grants. Uh, so I'm doing the conventional academic approach. Um, I'm a, an administrator, uh, so I'm able to get diet and lifestyle uh, into the service line that I manage uh, through some education of our providers. Uh, and then I'm absolutely committed to a big public footprint. So I have social media, newsletters, uh, books, TED Talks. Uh, and that has driven a lot uh, of awareness. Uh, and I think you guys need to do the same as drive, work with the community. Uh, you have a great website, lots of information to give inf- information to the public uh, articles that they could take to their primary care doc. Uh, and it, what you're able to do is create public awareness and public pressure. The medical community will respond uh, to the public pressure. And the research we do is uh, research that gets funded either by a drug company or by the NIH, uh, National Institutes for Health, and and or individual um, uh, private foundations. And so that, that makes it challenging to get uh, research done. Um, but if you're able to raise a small amount of uh, money, uh, you can put out a call for somebody to do a pilot study uh, in it related to this question of uh, 
fluoroquinolone toxicity, for example. Right. But yeah, really, your your biggest impact is to reach out to the public uh, and to put out great uh, content. I checked out your website. You've got you've done a wonderful job, and I'm very impressed with all of the great information and content that you have there. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. And um, lately, there have been a whole lot of local news stories about fluoroquinolone toxicity, um, and uh, more than more than a hundred actually throughout the nation over the last twelve months. And and that's that's been really huge for raising awareness and getting people, and, and getting people to to think twice when their when their doctor prescribes them Zipro and saying, you know, maybe a Z pack will do. Will will be will be okay or hey maybe i could take care of this urinary tract infection with some d-manos or you know working with their doctor to find some sort of alternate solution because they actually don't need something as drastic oh, as, uh, as cipro and the vast majority of antibiotics given it to outpatient setting is not for bacterial infection which is which is ridiculous and it just shows that like that there's not really an understanding of, of well, how consequential these drugs can be. Correct. And the public has gone in, because when World War II came around, and people who were dying of young, healthy adults who got an infection were about to die, their lives were saved by antibiotics. It was truly a miraculous cure. So physicians were impressed. The public was impressed. And so we began to see antibiotics as miracle drugs with very little risk. And so there was a huge push by the public to get antibiotics, uh, and it became more and more difficult for physicians to say no. And so it became easier to say, well, maybe small possibility there's a bacterial infection. I'll go ahead and give this to you in case you might feel better uh, because there's not much risk. So educating the public, so the public knows that uh, an antibiotic uh, has, a, has some profound consequences. Uh, and so you want to be taking it for what is clearly a bacterial infection that will not resolve on its own. Oh, absolutely, and and yeah, you're you're absolutely right. Like the, a lot of this is is patient driven, and yeah. and people going into their doctor and saying, well, I I know that antibiotics take care of my sinus infections because every time I get a sinus infection, I get antibiotics, and it goes away four days later. Well, viral yeah, sinus not- infections also go away in four days. So, <laughs> so uh, absolutely. So I think the most powerful thing is to uh, educate the public. So the public knows to think twice about wanting an antibiotic and themselves to be very cautious about, is an antibiotic absolutely necessary? Could we give this a little bit more time before we go to an antibiotic? You know, because I, uh, I think that would be safer for me. Yeah. And, ph- and physicians will be most likely willing to do that if the patient is willing to say, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I can wait. I can wait a couple more days for this to declare itself as clearly bacterial that I'm going to need something. Uh, absolutely, absolutely. So it's good to hear that we as a community are doing the right things by doing a lot of public outreach and and uh, 
doing things in the media and um, having podcasts and websites and things and oh, things absolutely. like that. So uh, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I, I I appreciate it just more than I can more than I can tell you. Thank you so much for being on well, here, Doctor Wall. Let's let's give people uh, my web address so they know how to find me and how to find the book. Perfect. Uh, so that's uh, Terry Walls, one word, T E R R Y. Walls, W-A-H-L-S dot com. And the book is The Walls Protocol, A Radical New Way to Treat All Chronic Autoimmune Conditions. But it's really essentially for all chronic health problems. Wonderful. And I will put up links on the on the show notes page to uh, Dr. Walls' website and um, and also to the to the book. And um, is there anything else you'd like to say before we go. Hail to the kale. Hail to the kale. All right. Eat lots of kale. Uh, nine cups a day is what Dr. Walls eats. So, or not, not necessarily of kale, but of... Nine green, cups of vegetables. Green, yep. green leafy vegetables, colorful vegetables, and, sul- and sulfur-based vegetables, which that is impressive, and it got her out of a wheelchair, and if she could get out of a wheelchair... Um, other people can too. So Absolutely. Uh, all right. Well, have a wonderful evening, and thanks again, Dr. Walls. You're very welcome. Good night now. Sure.